out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the singer-songwriter Reckless Eric, a man who's had a life in music and has now got a new album coming out August 2023 titled Leisureland. It's going to be a 15-track album available from all good record shops and also probably digital download but i will give you the link in the notes below so you can find out more a superb album starting with a track called southern rock finishing with drag time it is a good one so do check it out he says i know highly recommended um so uh, look this is the interview so after several minutes of interesting but casual chat uh where i was talking about music and musical awakenings in life and i mentioned david bowie as being the single my first single this was eric's reply eric it's over to you I saw David Bowie um, and he said he was alone with an acoustic, 12-string acoustic guitar, and he said, this is my new 45, this is my new single, and he played ground control to Major Tom. Right. So I'm quite old, you see, I'm 10 years older than you. This is true. Yes, I, I thought there might be a little bit of an age gap. 1954. Yes. So your, but your early musical awakening would have been somewhere in the sort of, I don't know, the mid 60s, 60s. Oh, the early 60s. I mean, it was the Beatles, you know. I mean, before that, there was like Earth the Kit, you know. I want an old fashioned house with an old fashioned fence and an old fashioned millionaire. And uh, I think it might have been Tommy Steele or something rocking, rocking with the caveman. And uh, at some point, I did hear uh, Hound Dog by Elvis Presley. Yes. Um, but these things are kind of, it's really sketchy before that. And there was a show on the TV called Six Five Special. And and my dad taught technical drawing in New Haven, right, in Sussex, and uh, some of his his pupils. He was like uh, he taught at the Evening Institute Night School. They used to call it Night School. Yes, we remember them and, ones. And uh, and some of his. Students were in a, or pupils were in a band called Countdown and the Zeros. And one day they were on the TV. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was the greatest thing in the world. But I think that might have been, that might have been after the advent of the Beatles. You know, there was before the Beatles, which is like, I don't know. And then there was the Beatles, and the Beatles was the most extraordinary thing at that time. You could never hear the Beatles like we heard them then. I mean, my my stepdaughter, who's, what, 33 and is a musician, she says, well, I don't really see what all the fuss is about. And so, well, look, it's it's kind of, you've got to put it into the context At the the time, it sounded positively extraterrestrial. It's hard to understand that now because it's been absorbed into every area of popular culture. So 
you've heard this stuff so much and you've heard it rejigged and regurgitated and uh, impersonated and whatever. And so it's become commonplace. But when we first heard it, there was nothing remotely like it. It was it was it was an utter revelation it was ungodly it was insanitary it was it was insane it was perfect because like well it went further to start with there was sort of like well, what is that you know they must be dirty because they've got long hair you yes. know uh, that's what the, the 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 one of the the great things about it was older people didn't like it, so this made it immediately attractive, and the 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 very unattractiveness of it made it because you're you're attracted to what you know, what you know becomes what you like, and its attraction was its very unattractiveness. It it was. How can I? I can't explain it any better, really. There was more, though, because when then the Rolling Stones, it opened the door. There was suddenly you became aware of, like, there were all these bands like Jerry and the Pacemakers and the Hollies and the, the, um, uh, Hermit. Like, Hermit. Not Herman's Hermits, please, not Herman's Hermits. Jerry and the Pacemakers, the, the Searchers. And, and this was all okay, but then you saw the Rolling Stones and they were on the TV. And that was like, what? It was it was really quite grating. It was it was it was a, a step further into this ungodly world. And then you've got the, the, you got the Yardbirds, and then you had suddenly, like um, uh, John Lee Hooker was shown on 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 Ready Steady Go, which was a TV show. Was that um, with Kathy McGowan on? Was that yeah? And it was actually devised by uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg, who was the like the director, you know. Yes. Whatever, and and. Funnily enough, I see Michael Lindsay Hogg when I'm in New York, where we're supposed to be living and are, are moving from. Um, in I see I see him in the local coffee shop. Um, we're in upstate near Hudson, near New York, and there's a coffee shop there, and I see Michael Lindsay Hogg in there all the time. And he's an awfully nice man. He says, "Hello, Eric. Now, how are you?" And he's <laughs> he's like, um, uh, he's just a good guy, you know. And I'm sort of like, oh, I'm all right, you know. But I mean, this guy, he did he he invented Ready Steady Go, which was shown in a small room where there wasn't room to hide the cameras. He said, "We'll make a feature of them." Yes, like you you'd never seen anything like it. There were TV cameras, and you could see them, and you could see the bands playing live, and the sound was really rough. It was astonishingly rough, 
And like, you know, then you saw the Rolling Stones, you saw PJ Proby, you saw you saw the Beatles, you saw the Who, and the Who smashed up their equipment, and it was like, what? There was nothing like any of this, so it was a thrill. But anyway, yes. I see Michael at Lindsay Hall two or three times a week, and he's like, I can't tell this man, you know, that I drink coffee with. <laughs> you changed my life. And, and, like, you know, I can't. I wouldn't, you know, but but he did. Yes. Um, and, like, he, he produced Let It Be for the, the Beatles film, you know. Yes. Uh, did all these videos so- for the Rolling Stones where the lighting is weird and satanic, you know. Yes. Um, so when it came to sixty-seven, which, which which was the summer, which was the summer of love, and it was the you know fourteen-hour Technicolor dream in Ali Pali with the Pink Floyd and Arthur Brown and Yoko Ono, were you old enough to kind of appreciate that that kind of psychedelic mood change? I was getting that way. Yes, um, uh, it kind of seemed to start in sixty-six. And then 67, things went really weird. And um, I was like, by that time, I was um, I was like 13. Yes. And I was starting to get the idea that things were weirder than I had otherwise thought they were. And it wasn't all just sort of like, um, you know, uh, Beatles suits and you know I want to hold your hand and all that kind of stuff it it was a slow a gradual process um, by 68 I was really into it by the time I was 14 I had discovered I mean I've been listening to pirate radio we used to listen to Radio London couldn't get Radio Caroline right so, so did you ever uh, listen to John Peel's Perfume Garden, you know, and on Radio London? Was it on the right? So you he on was there. Radio London for a while, as I remember. It was very strange because we could get like Luxembourg and that came through like it, it was phased and it was really the you know, sometimes the the reception was good, sometimes it wasn't, and the pirates was like Caroline was hard to get. It was like because I was on the south coast and Caroline, you would have up here in in Norfolk, you would have got Caroline quite easily. Yes. Um and then but London, we used to get Radio London. We get really good reception on Radio London. And then when it became Radio One, it was all a bit of a joke, except in the evenings. And there was Mike Raven's R and B show, and there was John Peel with Top Gear, and Top Gear was on on Sunday afternoons. Eventually, yes, it, it kept all changing around. One time it used to be on Saturdays, and then it was Sundays. I don't know. Um, but did you? What What was your moment when you you know heard people like Hendrix or Jim Morrison and the Doors? Because that was obviously taking the psychedelic period even, or you know, chapter to another level. I bought the the first album that I ever bought was "Are You Experienced" by the Jimi Hendrix Experience, 
And I bought that pretty soon after it came out. And I think that would have been 67. And that was, a, you know, a, a revelation. And then I had I had the Pink Floyd's first two albums, which I have still got. Mm. In, and, the, and the first Hendrix album, I still have those in mono. Um, and I, I've heard Saucer Full of Secrets in stereo twice and, and recoil because it's actually different. <laughs> and when I heard when I when I heard like Sergeant Pepper's in stereo, I was actually quite furious because a completely different record. And I'm, what is this? This is not it. Yes. So if you want to really hear it, you have to hear the mono. Nice. Yes, absolutely. So when you got to 16, and obviously this was 1970, did A, did you leave school? And did you also suddenly have that, oh, this has gone rather tricky you know jim jimmy hendrix died janice joplin jim yeah, morrison had died yeah. and and the year before was brian jones and then there was obviously yeah, things like altamont right. you know the part the party ended on a bit of a diner really didn't it and yeah, the beatles broke well, up i don't you know. know you see because i mean there was all that was ending but i was just starting i mean by the time i i was 18 i left school and, I, and, and as i left school there was all the Young Dudes by Mott the Hoople was a hit. And uh, um, uh, Schools Out was the yes. big hit of the summer, which was, how did they know? How did he <laughs> <you> know? <laughs> you know? And, uh, um, yeah, it, it, it was changing again, but I never felt that, like, I never saw the 60s ending on a sour note. I mean, the Beatles were breaking up and all that, but my life was beginning. Right, you were there. My, my life, I mean, like, it was very disappointing eventually because, you know, I thought it was, uh, this is like leaving home. It's my passport to promiscuity and all kinds of mind-bending kind of like adventures and everything and the reality of it was I had to learn to cook or starve and I had to learn how to use the laundrette and I didn't know how to do any of these things I had no idea I had no idea of the ways of the world you know any of it no. I, was, I was just completely unprepared I know. Even shaving would have been a tricky one, wouldn't it? So, so when oh, you, yeah. All you were, so how did you get to see David Bowie with his twelve-string guitar playing the early version? Go, I used to go to concerts all the time. You know, I saw so many bands. Like I started to go to see bands when I was thirteen, and I never looked back. You yes. know, one day I was I looked in the local paper and I saw an advert saying that Dr. John was playing Dr. John the Night Tripper. Yes. And I'm like, oh my God, it's tonight. So I thought so I got on the phone and like rang up the it was a Brighton Dome and I rang up the box office and said, Do you have any tickets? They said, Oh yeah, yeah, we got loads of tickets. Well, I got down there and I got down there for for when the doors opened because I was sure it was going to sell out. So, I mean, I'm there a quarter of an hour before the doors open thinking I'll get somewhere in the line. 
because I'd gone to see Free, who before they did all right now, and the queue for it, like they would have been over, it was upstairs in this club in Brighton called Jimmy's. And the line that went up the stairs would have been all that had got in. They could get about 200 people in there, and that would be very illegal, mm. but they would do it. And, um, uh, but the, the queue went right round the block and met up with itself. So I'm thinking, Dr. John, right, I get that. But it was so, it was done for the Brighton Festival and it was really badly advertised, you know. So I come and see, I get there and like they're saying, oh yeah, and they sold me a ticket, you know, seven and six or whatever it was. And they said, yeah, you can go in now, you know. And they said, well, we're about to open the doors in a little while anyway. So I went in there and, like, there's this guy sitting on the stage at a grand piano and there's two horn players and he's telling them stuff and playing it. And it it was him. It was right. It was Dr. John. And he was, like, going through stuff with the horn players and then he was playing stuff for a laugh and they were playing and they were all getting on well and everything. And then he sort of looked... And I, it was me sitting there in the stalls and nobody else in the place. He said, this one's for you, kid. <laughs> and played a tune for me, you know. Wowzer, that is nice, isn't it? It was like, so I used to go all the time. I mean, like I saw the Pink Floyd. Um, God, um, I'm trying to think of some of the more uh, Edgar Broughton band I saw a few times, you know, Out Demons Out, and then later the Poppy Song and stuff, you know. Yes. And uh, did you and did you embrace other like quirky stuff like there was the Incredible String Band or Comus yeah. or people like that, you know, those kind of acid folk musicians, or was it kind of rock and pop and acoustic stuff? Well, I was interested in all of it. I wanted to know all of it. I used to go and see John Mayle as well, you know, and I saw the band he had, which, I mean, you know, he's deeply kind of unfashionable in a way for a lot of people. It's like, but he had this band with no drums, and you're going, oh, well, how's that going to work? And, um, they did, they just had this great bass plan. He had a like, John, Johnny, John, Johnny, uh, Johnny Almond, and uh, John Mark, who was this acoustic guitar player who played with Marianne Faithful, you know, and he was like a bit of a virtuoso, and um, and this you know, tenor saxophone guy, and 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 this ridiculously good bass player. And and the thing was just so utterly groovy. You couldn't <laughs> believe it. How are they doing this? It was like some weird, they were like magicians. And then I used to go and see Procol Harum. They were the first band I saw that had a, a Hammond, right. Hammond organ. Like a lot of bands had like a Vox Continental or a Far Feast. The Procol Harum, they had the Hammond and they had the, white a shade of pale here and then suddenly they were like you know that i can't explain it they were just immense i would imagine yes that would have um that would be my my god you saw them all didn't you really that was i that saw was the... i saw a lot of bands but i never saw led zeppelin i never saw Jimi hendrix 
Um, never saw the Beatles either. Um, but uh, yeah. Was, what about like, Pete? What about Peter Green and, and Fleetwood Mac? Did you ever see any of that, that sort of combo? I saw. Uh, actually, I saw Peter Green playing with John Mayall. But it, it was one of his bands and, like, it was like um, he used to introduce the band, like, first thing. It was always his thing. Like, the band came on and then he said he'd introduce them before they started playing. And everyone in the audience, it's like everyone's going, oh, that's Peter Green. And it's like, I can't be, you know, because he'd gone mad. He'd officially gone gone mad by this time. And, like, there's this guy standing on the end. I mean, Les Paul, and he was all black T-shirt and Les Paul and the black ringlet hair. And he goes, no, it can't be. Right. But it was. It was him. That was yeah. Him. He, uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what the story about that was, but like they couldn't. They couldn't clear the theatre. Like John Mayall would you know, normally do a forty-five minute set. He probably played for three hours. <laughs> yeah. It was astonishing. It was a groovy scene, wasn't it? So you you had a bit yeah, of a. I suppose like Pete Pete Frampton had a. His father was a um, art teacher, wasn't he, at the school that David Bowie went to as well? Did your yeah. Did your parents were they quite a bohemian couple then? Your dad and no. <laughs> no, my dad was an arch conservative. Right, not okay. He was very kind of straight laced. He's Actually, I mean, he, he was a strange case because he he'd had a chest complaint called sarcoidosis, and he was the sixth person apparently to be discovered with this in the world or in this country or something, and uh, they didn't know what it was, and they thought it was TB that they thought it was TB or. Parkinson's or Hodgkinson's or something. They had no idea what it was and they thought he was going to die. But eventually they zapped it and they zapped it with the most massive dose of steroids. And they gave him so much steroids, he was addicted. They cleared it up, but he was addicted to steroids for the rest of his life. He used to have to take prednisone, and it's a really not a good thing to do. Like, mm. I, you know, my dad was kind of this morose, grumpy, kind of bad temper, monstrous kind of like this. But he was uh, behind that, there was this really nice, kind, gentle, he was a real gentleman, and he was. He was very kind and, you know, loving kind of person, but there was the steroid mask. Yes. It kind of... So I, I didn't know when I was growing up, I thought all dads were, you know, I didn't know that there were dads who played with their kids or, you know, were kind of easygoing and stuff because my dad certainly wasn't. And he came from this, like, working class. I mean, he left school when he was 14 he was an engineer and he worked his way right up through the engineering business right but um 
he never he should have been a, he should have been a shop steward he should have been a union leader but he want he was always a conservative you know my mother was much more kind of she was kind of a frustrated you know there was a bohemian though my dad was like a nice guy trying to get out from behind the steroids and my mum was trying to escape this kind of conservative middle class thing i mean they come from working class manchester roots and moved south you know yes and uh, she was trying to she would wanted to be an artist she used to write she used to paint and draw and stuff and um then she she started working at sussex university in the school of african and asian studies and it was the most the biggest nightmare for my dad because they're right in the middle of brighton suddenly and he has to put up with like foreigners. That was good. I mean, it was for me. It was an entertainment in the end. It was like my dad would come out with the most terrible pronouncements. Once he said, "He said homeless people don't ever talk to me about homeless people." And I said, "Well, why not? You know, someone's got to." And he said, "Some of them are better off than we are." You know, he was a real sort of Daily Express reader kind of person, you know. And uh, But he was suddenly, my mum was the school secretary at the university and, like, uh, the School of African and Asian Studies, they always had these, prof- you know, visiting professors and they, they had people coming from Africa, you know, I mean, like, with robes and shit, you know, and, like, it's like... Wow, this is this is incredible. And my dad's going, what the hell? You know. <laughs> and then and then she, I, I don't know. Um, my mum discovered gay men and how what fun they were. And that was great, you know. I mean, in our house, it was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's so so it was like. As I was beginning to, you know, discover a whole other world of of kind of ungodly wonderfulness, my mum was in her own way. She was discovering all this stuff as well. So we <laughs> had a strange time, really. Yes. So did you go to Hull College for sort of, art, you know, an art I course? I did. I mean, I couldn't. Well, first I went to Bristol. <laughs> I I went to the uh, was the West of England Academy of Art, and it was about to, or it did, as I went there. When I applied, it was the West of England Academy of Art, and it became the Bristol Polytechnic Faculty of Art and Design. And I did my foundation course there and like in those days like you go on to when you first went to art school they 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 shouted at you and told you you were useless for about 10 hours 
a day, five days a week. And then when you got through a year of this, it was like sort of dying and going to heaven because you get on the diploma course and they'd say, you can do anything you like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was confusing. But yes. Um, so I did the you can do anything you like in, in Hull. And did you? Were you drawn? Why were you drawn to Hull at that stage? Was it? Um... I was. I was. I, I. I kind of was trying to figure out who I was because I came from a very, very northern family, but I grew. I was born in New Haven in Sussex, and I grew up just outside of Brighton. So, um, but I didn't really feel like I fitted in. I didn't, and I didn't feel. I didn't feel working class and I didn't feel, I didn't know what middle class was. I certainly wasn't in the upper classes, you know. <laughs> so I didn't know where I fit into the world. No, no, not when I went When I went to Bristol, there was, you know, a lot of uh, young people from from London came to Bristol and they were, they just were all so kind of worldly wise and well to do. And like I went to this girl's house um, in London um, uh, that I was at the at college with, and like they had a real like a David Hockney drawing on the wall. You know, I mean, like it was another. It was another world. It was some world. And I, I, I didn't know where I fitted into the world. So I wanted to go north. I thought maybe I maybe I should go to the north. And it, it was horrible, really. I mean, it was cold. It was damp. It was like there was fog. In those days, there was this fog, and it was like dirty, grey, grimy, stuff that wrapped itself around you you know and uh you know they were like beer drinking kind of like um uh just uh, i don't know uh, it, it it wasn't like anywhere i'd ever been before so it was fascinating yes and it was a bit scary and I wondered if this is where where I should be. But I, I've always had an affinity with Hull. I, I loved being there at the same time. Yes, absolutely. And I think the spiders from Mars all came from Hull. Yes, didn't they? they had come from there and they hadn't come from they hadn't left there that long ago. I mean I I met people who who, you know, who'd seen um Mick Ronson Trevor Boulder playing, you know, Woody Woodman. See, they'd seen them all playing. They'd seen the the Rats, which was um, yes, uh, Ronson's band, you know, and um, so it, it it was in the air somehow. There was like this other side of Hull. You you couldn't be spiritual, could you, and come from the land of real beer and fresh fish, you know. Did, did Philip Larkin come from Hull though, didn't he? Yes, he did. He was the um he was the librarian at Hull University. He was a miserable bastard. We used to go we used to go up to we didn't go to the university much, but sometimes you'd go up there and go in the library to wind him up. <laughs> um there was um 
I can't remember who else. Um, Roland Gift. I knew his mother. She ran a junk shop. Right. Uh, it was around the corner from my house, you know, and then there was some... Um, Oh God! Later on, the 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 beautiful South, well, the House Martins, you know. Oh yes, of course, dear old Paul. Yeah, yeah, and uh, John John Bradbury from the Specials. He was at the art school with me, and Henry Priestman from the oh. Christians. Yes, and the yachts. I think was he? In yeah, the yachts. The yachts. Yeah, the yachts, and uh, they went to Liverpool, like Henry. Was yeah, he was the art school. He did his pre-diploma thing, so I knew him then. And he used to say to me, "He said we're into this thing called the Canterbury Sound." I said, "Oh yeah, I know about that. You know the soft machine and caravan and all that." So, How do you know about that? I said, "Oh well, you know, I've been around a bit." <laughs> <laughs> yes, was Kevin Ayres part of the Canterbury scene? Oh shit! Yeah, I mean, like that. Yes, he was. He was in the. Um, he was in the soft machine at the start, um, and then he was like Kevin Ayres, and I used to love Kevin Ayres. I used to go and see Kevin Ayres a lot. Yes, and when did you? Yeah. When did a guitar appear in your life? And and um, when I was about um, fourteen was when I got a guitar, and some kid at school said, "We're forming a folk group." Do you want to be in it? We want you to be in it. I'm going, okay, what do I do? And they said, well, you'll need to get a guitar and this is what you have to play. So like, I managed to find a guitar, you know, like from my paper round or whatever. Yes. Uh, <laughs> sort of like it was a three-quarter size acoustic guitar and it was absolutely finger lacerating to play and it probably cost me three pounds fifty which seemed like an awful lot of money and uh yeah i think the first song we played was colors by donovan nice blimey who catch the wind all those classics yeah, but I mean, like it didn't seem that cool at the time. But there was there was this guy in it. There was the 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 kid who was like really into it. Was like really good at playing the guitar. He would learn to play like finger picking folk guitar. And he was into Paul Simon. And he was into Ralph McTallan. He was looking at all this stuff. And like the other guy in the group who was going to play the bass when we could afford to buy a bass was um was a uh the son of a methodist minister and uh he wanted to he <laughs> so he was extremely unlikely for this but he wanted to be um he wanted to he wanted us to be like the Jimi Hendrix experience. He thought if you can play all that Ralph McTell stuff, you surely can play like Jimi Hendrix, you know. And then he was gonna be the bass player and he wanted me to learn to play the drums, but the other guy wasn't having that and I didn't want to play the drums, you know. I wanted to be like I wanted us to be like the Pink Floyd, you know, the Piper at the Gates Pink Floyd. But um, yeah. I mean Basically, none of us knew what we were doing. So the kid that knew what he was doing, uh, he went off and played with um, uh, Robin, what's he called? The guy from that group M, you know, pop music. 
Oh, I only know, yeah, M, pop music. So he went to play with that guy. Yeah, well, he'd been, he he was older than us, but he came from like around there where we went to school. And uh, yeah, and I knew his kid brother who became the bass player in in uh, a band called Ruger later, later on. Blimey, I've never come across Ruger later. Oh, they were on Stiff Records. Right. Good old stiff records. So look, then then as we were trucking into the glam rock period, and then there was prog rock and a bit of heavy metal. Did you did you sort of it was a great decade? And and obviously there was a sort of a huge amount of political strife at that time. When did you sort of find your songwriting sort of abilities? In Hull. <clears throat> well, I didn't. I'm still looking for my songwriting abilities, if I'm honest. You know, I feel like I don't know what I'm doing. And, like, uh, it's it's kind of... You keep staring up there for some reason. What are you looking at? There's another screen of... of <laughs> there's, I've got you on two screens, you see. So oh. you've got the camera's there and the screen's up here as well. So I'm just... <laughs> oh, I wonder what you were looking at, is no, no, that's that's no. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. No. So my songwriting abilities, yes, I, I, I never really felt like because thing is, we used to play, um, we used to play cover versions. So you know, like a big thing was like Chuck Berry songs and Bo Diddley songs, and you could get on the Bo Diddley rhythm and you could be playing that forever. And then we we were into the Velvet Underground, but we couldn't begin to do anything like that, you know. Right, yes. So then... So the early 70s, um, yeah, the Velvet Underground were very important. And then, of course, Lou Reed solo albums and I think by the time I was leaving school and going to art school I was entrenched in the art school thing by the time Transformer came out right that was that was massive that was like uh, but but uh, yeah so we used to listen to all this stuff but it was like where do you go with band and like I said thing is we, we we need some of our own songs, but that would make us like we can't carry on doing covers because we've got no identity. Yes, it's never gonna it's not gonna work, is it, for a long no, I mean you couldn't really start covering King Crimson songs or something. It, it just was, you know, not that I wanted to actually, but uh I we didn't know where we so I said I I said well no one else will do it I'll do it I'll write some songs and like they might not be any good but at least they'll be ours and it'll make us different to everyone else mm -hmm. but it wasn't a thing that you could be I mean like now it just seems like anyone can be like a songwriter but then it was like what you know <laughs> yeah we're going to write our own material what <laughs> you know so. Like, I wrote a few things. I, I mean, I remember writing the whole wide world and no one will play it because... And where, and, and where did you write that? Where, where? What sort of bed sit were you sitting in? Well, I was not in a bed sit. I had a flat. But uh, when I actually wrote that song, I was trying to avoid a girl that I was trying to split up with. But, you know, being a coward, I didn't want to sort of split up with her. So I 
gone missing and then I came home and she was waiting on the doorstep. But in the meantime, I fought up whole wide world. And I was up near the university because I never went up there and I thought no one's going to find me up here. And I was writing, I had the words all written on an envelope and I was trying to remember the, the tune and kind of go the whole wide world, I'll go the whole wide world just to find her. Yeah, okay, I'm going to find out where they hide. I thought, oh, that's really good, you know, but and I'm sort of like, I get home and she's waiting for me. She's going, where have you been? I said, oh, I've been out, I've been, and, and, she, and she's going, well, you know, like, we were supposed to meet up earlier. I go, oh, yeah, sorry, I forgot, yeah. And I've got this bass guitar, and I'm holding it against the wardrobe to make it so, because, you know, I didn't have an amplifier. I'm trying to write this song on a bass guitar, and I'm splitting up with a girl. <laughs> it was the most uncanny, and it was whole wide world. Blimey, that is but amazing. But no one would actually play it, play it in the first band I had there the, because, um, like, the guy who was the most kind of musically adept said, well, it's only got two chords in it. That can't be right. And then he said, like, the, the beat, it goes out of time. Well, it doesn't. It's got two extra beats in it. So it goes into fourth, into six four time for a bar. Right. We didn't know how to say things like that. So it was kind of like, I'm going, well, it just goes like that. You know, you can't go like that. It's not right. You keep on going out of time. I'm not going out of time. It goes like that. But then I got in a band with a guy called Graham Beck, who came from Great Yarmouth. And he seemed quite normal, except occasionally when his great Yarmouthness would kind of come to the fore. I'm still, <laughs> I'm still friends with Graham, and he's he's still up in Hull, and he's a keyboard player. And we got a band together, me and him, and a drummer. And the drummer was like very kind of forceful about like right you've been sort of messing about writing songs you've got to write more you've got to really write songs I want I want you to write two songs a week every week and it was like I can't do that he said yes you can you're going to have to or you'll answer to me and he was quite scary you know and then there was Graham who would sort of like go like I said, well, I've got this song called Whole Wide World, but it's got something wrong with it. He's going, no, it's got nothing wrong with it. And I say, yeah, it's this bit everyone has trouble with. And he said, oh, that's easy. It's just got two extra beats. And he sorted it all out for us, you know. Well, it to everyone. And, like, suddenly I was the songwriter, which I quite liked because I'd been a useless bass player. I'd been a bad singer. And like a you know a fairly bad guitar player, but suddenly it was like, yeah, see that guy, he writes songs, you know. So and I then, had, and that, I that's like I had some standing in the community. Yes, it definitely things moved. So then, was that the point where you called yourself Reckless Eric, and then thought no, that's it? No, no, 
oh, no one really called themselves anyone. I mean, we were art students, so we, we just we used to go out and play. And, and then, like, there was this guy who was a tutor, he, but he was a visiting lecturer, and he came. He was a Rothschild. He was a man called Bob Rothschild, and he he wanted to. He wanted to. He wanted me to go back to America with him because he wanted to become a record producer. He got no idea how to. In the end, he just became an eminent professor, at, uh, you know, a New York University. But um, he had this idea that he really wanted to become a, a, a like a record producer. I think he just fancied wearing a cape or something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> there, was a, there, there was a lot of capes in the 70s, weren't there? I suspect you yeah, saw Rick Wakeman. Yeah, all kinds of ridiculous things. But anyway, so, but I had a very ambitious girlfriend. I mean, left to me, I would have just been staring at walls in Hull and collecting the dole, I would have Im- imagined, or, you know, like joining the other guy in the band who became a park keeper or something. But somehow... I ended up moving to London and, you know, and we stopped playing, we stopped the band and it was awful because they formed another band and had a great time and loads of people came to see them and then one of them was in the red guitars for a bit and I felt like I'm sitting here in London and I suddenly had this record deal because I found out about Stiff Records and I said, I've got these songs and they heard me and like, they wanted me to make a record for them and yeah that was it it was the dawn of punk it was kind of 76 and i never knew if i had anything to do with punk but we were all kind of unemployed and you never did anything under your name Right, yes, that was that period. I have an alias the whole time, so whatever alias I had was the, you know, that week was it. So, with so your, you you mentioned the Red Guitars. I mean, that was one of my kind of indie favourite bands from the 80s. So were they members already knocking around in Hull at that point in the 70s? Starting to, yeah. Um, and my friend Stuart Ross... Um, Oh, what was the first the first record that they made? The first single. There could have been good technology or Paris. Yeah, well, I think he wrote the words for that. He wrote some words for them. Right. Yeah. Classic. Yes, they they toured with the Smiths in the eighties, early eighties. Yeah. I mean, so, it's, that's an incredible thing, really. Yeah. Um, I love the red guitars. Yeah. Yes, they've they've reformed actually, and are going to do some dates in the autumn very soon. So, um, yes. So they're good, but then you know, obviously. So, can you remember going then into the studio to record the single, "Whole Wide World"? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, like it was Steve Goulding was the drummer, and uh, it was Nick Lowe was producing it, and. I came along with my Japanese top 20 guitar and my Hona Orcaform 40 watt amplifier and um, 
I didn't play on a whole wide world. I just sang it because Nick had an idea. He said, "If it don't work, we'll we'll do it differently." But uh, can we try this? And I was like, "Oh yeah, you know," because like I'd try anything. But I mean, like I was completely freaked out by it. Really, I didn't know. I had no idea what a recording studio would be like. I mean, you couldn't go on the internet and see pictures of one. You couldn't really get the idea. You'd look at them on it album covers you'd look at the pictures and you'd sort of try and get an idea of what this was like but you couldn't really you couldn't tell you couldn't see it on the tv you know or something like that they didn't show this kind of stuff so you had no idea and in the end, I thought it might be like a, a huge aircraft hangar with banks of speakers for some reason. And then I get there and it's this grubby little damp building that smells of, you know, beer and, and electricity and cigarettes. <laughs> and, yes. it's like, and it's just really grubby and kind of weird. And like, I kind of had to figure it out from the from the ground upwards so like nick said like it'd be great if there was another verse in this song could you could you write another verse to go in this bit and i go yeah I mean, like, you know, I mean, that's uh, like if someone asked me to do that, now I go, what? I can't do that. And I freak out completely. I go, oh, yeah, yeah, give me something. So someone gave me an envelope and a piece of paper, you know, and a pencil, you know, and I wrote. Everything seemed to be written on the back of envelopes in those days. When did we stop writing on the backs of envelopes? Yes, well, we don't get much post anymore, do we? So, um, no. yes. That's that's tricky. So then, <laughs> when you heard it played back, were you boggled by it? Did you think, my God, that's that's what I've just written? No, I I had to I, I had to I actually write the verse. I should be lying on that sunset beach with her caressing her warm brown skin. And then in a year, and maybe not quite, we'll be sharing the same next of kin. I wrote that in the studio like you know and then then it was like well nick was playing the bass on it he played the guitar and and steve played the drums and then nick put the bass on and then they played like him and steve played tambourines and they kept like doing doubling them and recording more of them and and like all the time they were bouncing it to one track and bouncing it to one track until they got like a load of tambourines and then the hand clap you know yes yeah and uh and then it was Damn, Steve packed up his drums and he was off and and like then I sang it. And there was me and there was the engineer, Bassa, Barry Farmer. And yeah, and Nick, and Nick said, I want you to do it like this. And he talked me through the whole thing and he guided me through, and it took ages to do the vocal. Right. Tricky. How many takes did you do? God knows. I mean, it just went on forever, you know, until I think I came back, actually. 
I know we just got very, very stoned and very drunk. I mean, you know, there was, uh, in those days, this idea of the, the disciplined, gone to college kind of young professional musician, it didn't exist. I mean, you just didn't dare do well, really. <laughs> yes, a young kid. Yeah, so then, once the, the single got released and obviously it became this massive you know success and john peel picked it up and it became well, part of his fest yeah and he liked it it came out on a compilation record and like, yeah and like you know suddenly like it got reviewed it came out and they put it out as a single by popular demand and all that kind of thing and uh you know like it even Elton John reviewed it and he loved it. It was the only record he liked. And suddenly I was this, that. But I hadn't got a I hadn't got a clue, you know. I didn't know. It was like, you know, I I'd been playing in scuzzy little pubs to art students and you know, and like and playing you know, sort of working men's clubs and stuff, you know, for people who, like, wanted to beat you up afterwards in the company. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. You know, but I mean, like, you know, suddenly it was like um, playing to a thousand people and it's like, oh, how does this work? <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Then you became part of the, the cele not celebrity, but you obviously started getting better offers so then did you have you got signed or you signed to stiff records then was there a lot of kind of a, a, a pressure to get an album recorded and out there as you were captured the zeitgeist of punk i don't know that there was a pressure it wasn't kind of like we've got to this is hot you know i mean like i didn't know that i didn't sort of think wow this is really weird i didn't think this was like uh, astonishing i didn't think this was unusual i had no measurement of it because i was young i was like 22 years old i i i didn't know i mean if that happened now i go hello i better get some representation this isn't quite normal you know but then i had no no kind of frame i felt like i had no frame of reference in a way yes and Things were just as they were. But it's funny, really. I never got to this point where I thought, right, okay, well, that's over. I've had a great time. Well, I hadn't had a great time, actually. It was. It, it just seemed to be... I don't like the music business. I thought most of the people in it were fucking stupid. I thought they were... They were... They were... They were sexist. Some of them were racist. They were... They were kind of early informed even some quite a lot of that time you know i mean you you think that you're going to be dealing with these groovy enlightened people and you're dealing with kind of people who've been in pub rock bands and they were yeah but did what was you what did dave robinson and, and jake was it Riviera? Were they kind of better than the other people you'd dealt with, or was that kind of just... Jake Riviera, 
uh, was a visionary and is a visionary and is a, a great man. I think Dave Robinson wasn't actually even interested in Stiff Records when we when when it started. Um, he was much more in. I mean, it was a vehicle to release all these pub rock bands that he recorded at the Open Anchor. He only, re- I mean, he was managing Graham Parker and the Rumor, which was, you know, more pub rock really that got successful. I mean, he managed to take pub rock out of out of like the pubs and put it into sort of like the Hammersmith Odeon eventually. But I mean. It was like um, not, yeah. He he wasn't part really big on the day to day running at the start of it. It was really when it started to get to make money that he got interested, you know. And then Jake really wanted to leave, and there are all kinds of tales, and I really can't tell you a lot mm. of because I will get sued. Um, (laughs) It would be a bad idea. But, but, um, I mean, at some point, Jake said to me, I feel bad about what happened with you and I should have taken you with me when I left. But I did say to him, I said, well, you know, I would have screwed it up. I would have, it wouldn't have been good. I would have screwed it up and you would have hated me. But I love Jake. I think he's a great man. I I really, I I know what he was trying to do, you know. Yes. And that that period, I mean, you know, like David Bowie, he did one album during the 70s. He did one album a year, toured several times, relocated, did various films. Amazing output. And you also in that late 70s were bringing an album out a year, touring, working very, you know, intensely. What was that? I, I didn't actually. I don't know how I, I realised without wanting to tell anybody that when it came to songwriting, I had no idea how to do it and what to do. And I didn't really know how records worked, you know, how making them work. I listened to lots of them and went, okay, that's that and that. And But I mean, you know, it was a, it was a Larry time. I also had a drink problem. Right. Which was very difficult to deal with. I mean, I didn't know I had a drink problem, but I was spent a lot of time off my head completely. Yes. But the, but then I guess the community of people, because did you meet people like Larry Wallace and I don't know, yes. did you ever did did you ever meet Lemmy? Because I think he was on uh, Motorhead. Oh, yeah, loads of times. Yeah, yeah. I, I knew Lemmy at the time. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And Fast Eddie and Phil, 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 Phil oh, Taylor? I was in the studio in uh, uh, Chalk Farm um, next to the Roundhouse, and uh, you know, I kept hearing this rumbling through the wall. We were mixing a single, and, like, uh, and uh, I said to the engineer, like, is, there a, is there a tube train? And he said, oh, no, that's Motorhead. They're in the studio next door. So it was like bronze studio. So all right. Uh, so a bit later on, I came out of the door of our studio. We were in this little studio. Motorhead were in. A, we were just mixing a track, and like they were in the big studio, you know, recording tracks. And like 
I came out and Lemmy was in the hallway and he said, you're Eric. I said, yes. And he said, we're not, never formally met, but we're always seeing each other. Because I'd always say hello and he'd always say hello and like we'd had chats and stuff, but we never kind of, but he was really kind of correct in his way. And he said, yeah, we never formally met, but it's, it's nice to meet you, you know, and like we had a chat and everything. And in the background, the door of their control room door was open to the hallway. He said, yeah, the boys are just working out a technical difficulty. And suddenly I'm seeing on the background, there's two band members and one is over the desk and the other one's trying to hit him with an engineer sort of freaking out in the background trying to pull him off <laughs> and there was this huge punch up going on and he said <laughs> yeah the boys are just working out a technical problem <laughs> it's a classic it's a weird thing and then i went back in my room he went back and you know it was like did that really? Wow. <laughs> yes, there you go. I think they in those early albums, they were produced by or, yeah, recorded by, was it Rick or Vic Mayle, who was their producer? Vic Mayle, yeah. yeah. I wish I'd met him. God, he was in Rickmansworth. And uh, the Feel Goods recorded their first album and second one with him. But I think some people would get frustrated because he would just do it his way. Yes. So when you came to do your second album, you had a different producer, didn't you? Oh, that was awful. That was depressing as hell. Right. This wasn't a good one, was it? The, the tricky no, it was, it was kind of like, yeah, it was like, yeah, well, this is your producer. And it was like, I, yeah, because the first album I had Larry Wallace and like, you know, by that time we were, um, a bottle of vodka a day each um, and uh, so things were quite weird really <laughs> but um, I love Larry but yeah I do like... I do his the live version of Police Car is just a classic isn't it yeah oh Larry I'd seen Larry with the pink fairies you know so I mean like to get to meet him like I was sitting in this pub with Ian Dury and and uh, it's this like uh, Ian goes, and I used to have a Pink Fairies poster in the toilet, and he said, "Yeah, like don't look now, but that's that bloke from the uh, from that poster that you've got in your toilet." And I'm like, "Oh, oh Christ, that's Larry Wallace! God, he's coming over here!" And it was like this mountain of a man and he had this long fuzzy black hair and mirrored sunglasses and a leather jacket and he was like the incredible hulk coming towards you and going god he's coming over here and it was like and he, he stood in front of the table where we were sitting and said are you eric i'm larry <laughs> <laughs> And it turned out he was frightened of everything. Really? Yes, he was like, uh, you know, he'd been in Motorhead. I mean, he left Motorhead because the drugs were really, I mean, you know, it was all too much for him. Was there a bit of a community scene? Because there was people like Mick Farron, wasn't there, who'd been oh, part Mick of the... Mick Farron, yes, I loved Mick Farron. 
Yeah, and um, um, there was the pretty things, and there was um, uh, Hawkwind. Um, oh, what's the guy called from Hawkwind? Hugh Lloyd Langton. He was always around at the stiff office. You know, and it's funny, but they're all reviled as being like old hippies and stuff, but they were the people that were really into it all. Yes, there you go. I know there was some, was it Simon House? Was he in uh, Hawkwind? Was it Simon House? I can't remember. Yeah, I think Simon, Simon, uh, was that the... Was that the arty fiddle player come... I I can't remember now. Who? Mm. What? <laughs> yes, I, I just remember Dave Brock, and then there was the sort of classic Hawkwind. And who was I saw the... Hawkwind do their seventh ever gig when they first started, and they turned up in place of Shaking Stevens and the Sunsets to support the crazy world of Arthur Brown. And so it was a bit of a strange billing, you know, a bit scary because, like, the Shaking Stevens and the Sunsets had a following of Teddy Boys who were kind of like, you know, a bit kind of right wing. (laughs) (laughs) It was was kind of, you know, it was was going to be a bit of a Larry night anyway, but, I mean, you can imagine what they thought. They turn up in the Hawkwind and suddenly they're doing Paranoid Uh, paranoia you know uh, all gone uh, accumulator that would have been you know and like with strobe lights going so that was a strange one (laughs) yeah so when we hit 1980 you did your third album with stiff big smash were things a bit more sorted was the drinking still an issue at that stage oh horribly so i mean like really and I didn't know what I was supposed to do by then. And I, I really do feel that, you know, my work suffered most definitely. I'd lost the path. I was just following what anyone told me to do. And eventually, you know, after 1980, I did actually leave. I didn't want to be. I wanted to not be in the music business at one point, but I mean, like I left, I, I sort of, I wrote some great stuff. I wrote some really good stuff. And then I signed with Go Disc, but I wouldn't do it as Reckless Eric. I invented a band. Yes. And was called Captains of Industry. And I did that, but the record wasn't very good for two reasons. Maybe I think that I was surrounded by people who didn't really know about the mechanics of making records. Um, And I didn't know. I didn't know what I was doing and I was impeded by having a dream problem. Yeah. Did you say the captains of industry? Was this managed by Johnny Green? At one point, yes, yes, but Johnny Green was in a worse state than I could have possibly aspired to at that point. <laughs> yes, he had a lot of problems at that point. And but you know about Johnny Green? Yes. Well, he's quite a famous character, isn't he? And um oh, yes, he was the Clash's road manager, yeah. And I think he's written several books, hasn't he? I'm sure I had a book. Of yes, books. he's written one about the Tour de France. He's written one about the Clash, obviously, which is called A Riot of Our Own. Yes. 
Um, very messy. So then this classic comes into our lives, doesn't it? The Len Bright combo. Yeah, did that. Um, I, I moved to the Medway towns eventually. Like the, as we started the Len Bright combo, I stopped drinking, you know, and I started to get myself a bit under control. But yes, I did the Len Bright combo and we, you know, we were completely independent, put out our own records, didn't even use proper studios, which was great because by then I'd started to learn quite a lot about recording. I'd been around a lot of recording and I'd started to realise that either the 80s was like, you know, putting on a straitjacket of some sort creatively because... Record modern recording had been around long enough that people who there were people who started to make rules about how it was. Well, this is how you do it. This is how you know. And and as I started to go down the, uh, you know, I mean, like I was no longer kind of popular and all that. So I mean, like I the studios got cheaper and cheaper, and the engineers got more kind of kind of like, well, this is how you do it, you know. And, um, you know, big kings of little castles, and uh, almost like that. I, 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 I didn't like it. I didn't like how it was. So, you know, and I met Russ Wilkins, who was in the, you know, had been in the milkshakes, and he said, "Well, we we make records like this." Um, they would, you know, and I said, well, I've got, I've got this, I've got access to an eight-track recording machine, which my brother-in-law had. So we got all this equipment together and put it in a church hall and made a record with it. And I'm sure we didn't quite know what we were doing, but it was kind of great. And it was the first Lambright Combo album. Yes, with the hit single, Someone Must Have Nailed Us Together. Yeah. And we were kind of, you know, I mean, it was, it was haphazard. Um, that was a difficult thing to be in for me. I wasn't quite getting to anywhere where I wanted to be. But after that, I think my life did go a bit wrong after that because I suppose it does really. I mean, I stopped drinking. Yes. Stopped doing all of that stuff. And, uh, which is, you know, you think, oh, well, everything's fine now, but actually then you run into the, you run straight up against the reason why you were doing it in the first place. And there's a lot of self-loathing and, um, yeah, um, underlying problems. And like, let's say, you know, and like I, I did actually end up after the Lembright combo, I held, you know, I held it together for a, about two and a half years and then just went completely off my rocker for a short while. Yeah. So oh, was yeah, not in a good way. But so then was... I got back to got I got it back together and I started making my own homemade records. The beat group electric, Donovan of Trash. 12 o'clock stereo, karaoke, bungalow high. You know, I started doing all that. 
But then it, it used to take me a long time to make a record. There were times, I mean, five years ago by without a new record because I didn't dare put anything out because I thought, you know, maybe it's not good enough. Maybe I'm going to... I mean, I still have that. And even with this new record, it, I was terrified for it, you know, to come out. It was mm. like... Uh, you know, to, to suddenly to Petter, they heard it because of a publicist who I was going to work with. He said, I'd love to work with you, you know, but would you like to do it through a label? And I'm sort of like, no, because like I don't want a label to hear it in case they said it wasn't good enough. Right. Yes. No, it's so terror of um, it's still there to an extent. Um and it gets better. I mean, like I work quite confidently now, but I didn't then. It it was like it was fraught. It was like um Did you um, have, did you have some kind of surprises when you had you had you had your you know the single played in that film Stranger Than Fiction, didn't you, with Will yeah. Farrow Farrow? Did that did that did moments like that make things better or did it make you feel even more confused? Well you know, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, like, look, I've been making records for something like, you know, almost, I, I mean, is it 45 years or something like that? It's a lot. Yes. It's 1976. It, it's kind of a very long time. But for a lot of people, it, it's just focused on the on the first three years maybe i mean what have we just been talking about yes quite a lot of the see, early years you see what i mean but i've had years and years of it so it's kind of a a, a, a weird thing i don't want to say oh that i don't know i'm, I'm about more than that because like when i started i mean it was like wouldn't it be great to have a hit record and i yes. didn't a hit record in that it rocketed up the charts and I was on top of the pops, thank God. I, I, I'm actually quite proud of not being on top of the pops because I think it's the most horrible, horrible kind of uh, establishment thing. I think it's um, it was a hotbed of, of kind of sexism and paedophilia, you know, I mean, like anything would bloody Jimmy Savile on it. You, you want to be anything to do with it? I don't, you mm -hmm. know. I'm sorry, no, but it's like, uh, so, but but in some other way, I had this insidious hit. It was like I'd look at Gloria, but I can remember sort of thinking, uh, wouldn't it be weird if you'd written a song like Gloria and everybody who ever gets together in a, in a, in a, you know, in a garage or a rehearsal room for the first time, and they go, well, we all know this one, and they play Gloria together. Whole wide world is that tune now. Yes. You know, it's like, and I think, oh, yeah, I wrote that. And it's like, I have that, and so many people have covered it, and so many people, it's a massive hit. Now, isn't that what I wanted in the first place? I, I got a hit. So for me to go, oh, no, what about that? I'm about all this. It's a bit kind of churlish. Yes. 
Well, it's, it's, you, you know, I mean, it's it's a difficult thing. Do you know Spirit in the Sky by Norman Greenbaum? Oh, yes, definitely. And then, and then... He's got all these other songs, you know, and they're really good, but they're not Spirit in the Sky. No one ever wanted to know. Well, now, well, I don't know if he still does it. He's maybe retired, but for years he was going out and his set was Spirit in the Sky. And it would start up and it's down, down, down. Well, that go on for quite a long time. And then some girls would come and they'd be going, prepare yourself. And it's like, you think, what for? You know, hundred <laughs> down, down, down. And then suddenly he's there, you know, after about 10 minutes, he's on stage, you know doing it, the song, but then they would jam it out. They would do Spirit in the Sky for 45 minutes. And for an encore, guess what they did? They'd come back and they'd start up again because everyone loved it. I mean, isn't that fantastic? If Whole Wide World was that kind of song, I could have done that. <laughs> but then in the last 20 years, yeah, you're right. You've you've been releasing a lot of albums, but also you signed to Fire Records for one period of the... I did, it? yes, yes, that was awful. I mean, it didn't start off awful, but it became awful. I mean, they're not so much a, a record company as some weird sect, I think. I don't know, you know, the least said about Fire Records, the better. I think anyone who's ever been on Fire Records and left will not have much good to say about them. Right, that was Fire Records, yes. But then, then okay, so then you did Construction Time and uh, Demolition. Don't, uh, Demolition. So that yeah. that was like about six years ago, wasn't it? So was were things getting... And, uh, 18 construction time and demolition yeah yes that, right so was the was thing were things getting into a better space for you at this stage well they had done i mean as far as recording i'd also done all the records with my wife amy rigby we did the first record we did was just called reckless eric and amy rigby and it was us trying to figure out what we could do you know and then our second album was an album of cover versions which was curious um because like we, we i don't know like you know, when people make their second album, it's kind of like they haven't got quite so much material to draw on as the first album. But like we've, we're doing, that's a laugh. Let's do an album of covers. Classic. We were so prolific, we could have done, but we did the album covers. And do you know, after that, I never read a review that said I couldn't sing. Before that, I did, and I've, I've always had this idea with that album that, um, yeah, so suddenly they knew the tune that, because, yeah, it's easy to say someone can't sing, but I would be using different intervals. The, you know, and I said, well, yeah, suddenly they heard me singing tunes that they knew, and they knew what the tune should be. Right. Yes, and that and it, um, it was kind of it turned things round a bit for the singing. But me and Amy were, you know, ten years we did uh, our thing together, and we still work together. 
But was uh, was a was a working museum the last album you bought bought out together? Museum, yeah, yeah, was the last one. Yes, and uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I thought that was a great album actually, um, and it was like I produced and engineered them really, and you know, uh, Amy wrote more stuff than me, and. Since then, I produced one album for Amy, and I'm in the middle of producing another one. Um, yes. Yeah. And, well, I don't know. It's like, yeah, producing is a funny game. I mean, I always thought I wanted to be a record producer, but actually I wanted to be an engineer. Right. quite know it, you know. Uh, oh, one thing I've noticed is that quite a lot of people have become duos now with their partners. I think they've they've been in bands and they've tried to do solo stuff, and then they just find that working with their partner is a nice relationship. And it um... yeah, it can be for some people. It it maybe breaks them up. I mean, for us, it was it was terrific. The only reason we stopped doing it is, I mean, like the first thing is that Amy was writing a book, and I thought. When she's finished writing the book, I'm going to be like the Duke of Edinburgh. Yeah, yes. I'm going to be like, uh, so I said, well, I, I'll just do some reissues and stuff, and 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 that seemed to go quite well. And like, and then I said, I'll make an album. And in the time that it took her to put the book out, I I reissued her like half my back catalogue and and um, and put out three albums. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. it was kind of like and we go oh yeah you know and uh, uh i don't know so i mean yeah so, so coming some coming to full circle to the new release leisure land this is going to be coming out actually this month isn't it august 2023 when did you start record when did you start writing the material for it because it's quite a conceptual album isn't it it's not really. People keep asking me about it being conceptual, but honestly, I think, you know, the reason I, I would say that I'm a pop musician and the reason is that that I don't have the, you know, I don't have the organize, the intellectual organisation to do anything as lofty as a con, 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 concept album. I, I mean, I would, I did think about it for a while when I was making it, but I would have become a slave to the concept. And instead of going, right, what can I do? Right, I'll tell you what, I got this, I, this goes, this is going to sound great with all that stuff and I'll put that, yeah, and I'll do that and and I'm creating. Um, I would be going, now, what can I do? What, I'm, what haven't I covered yet? You know, and I, I'd be in this terrible kind of cramped thing trying to adhere to the concept when when most of me would want to fly out of the window and and make it something else you know right. so i, I that, that's i i i discarded the idea i did it did occur to me that i could try for that but i just knew how i i know how i am so i didn't so it it's not there's a lot of stuff i mean like years ago when i first started out and i was make first making an album ian dury said to me that he said look a a, a good album 
is not necessarily one where all the songs are great. It's one where all the songs feel like they live together in some way. So it's no good. Sometimes people try and put all their best songs on an album and it doesn't have a cohesive feel to it. No. And I always, I always thought about this, that uh, it's just a question of, and he said like a good album is one with two good songs on it. A really good album's got three good songs on it and uh, he had some sliding scale of how good a I thought that was quite amusing and very insightful, really. Yes, absolutely. So I I just think, well, you know, it it all seems to it feels it's like it it either sonically it lives together or lyrically it lives together or kind of emotionally it lives together or harmonically it. You know, something something tells you that all this stuff should be together. Mm. And there's one song. I mean, I got this song that I thought was absolutely killer, you know, and I thought, this is great, and it says so much. And uh, in the end, I left it off because it didn't live, it didn't fit with it. I thought, well, we'll leave it. I'll use that somewhere else because it doesn't live with this. Yes. Was this an album that you wrote? In lockdown, and did you write it in Chroma or New York? Kind of. I, I can't remember when I started it because, like, I did have COVID and I, uh, I got really quite bad with COVID. It damaged me, and the damage to my lungs it, it damaged my heart. And I uh, ended up, I had an uh, like a, a heart attack, and um, so I had all that, you know. and uh, were you in England for during COVID then? Yeah. Uh, no, no, I was in, oh God, I'm forgetting where I am. Um, I'm in England now. <laughs> but no, you... I have, uh, before COVID, just before COVID, I had been in England. And then I came back and I was actually intending to go back to England about three weeks later one way or another, but I had to come back to do some gigs and to do some stuff. I'm like, um, and then the lockdown happened. I mean, I did a gig on the Saturday night and Sunday I felt weird. Um, Monday I felt really ill and uh, they shut everything down and I got it. But they said I, they, they wouldn't, they wouldn't, uh, uh, I got onto the health line about it and they said, no, you haven't got it. Your symptoms aren't right. But then they changed the symptoms, you know, and it fitted, uh, you know, no one knew what was going on. I mean, it was horrific. And It was. So were you in New York at that point? Yeah, upstate New York, yeah. So you, you went through the COVID period in hospital in New York City? I didn't go to hospital for the COVID. I was just... At home, I was just very, I mean, like, you know, um, I'd never been like that. I just, just literally would get out of bed and go and lie on the sofa and I wouldn't be able to get up. Yes. And I wouldn't to do anything. And it went on for weeks and it sort of seemed to get better and then I'd go down again, you know. And... And then I got diagnosed, they started testing and I got tested and I had it. So I quarantined, I quarantined 
twice or three times. And then I was, uh, I, I, I came out of the quarantine. Supposedly I was better, but I wasn't. And eventually I got worse and worse and ended up in the emergency room. And I, I had a very nearly fatal heart attack. Blimey, that was, um, yes, that was a horrendous period. So and then I came out of that and I, I was, I find that the best place I could be after that was in the recording studio and my recording studio that I, you know, have and I will be in there and that's where I felt okay. So I just show up every day and go and do stuff and and I don't know how how I got to making this record I was I think first thing I did was something for um do you know where's Stace Wesley Stace who John Wesley Harding no He's a he's a writer and he's also a musician, but he's in America. He's English, but he asked me to cover some song for a, you know, some sort of a benefit album, um, and I did that, and it led me down a strange path of recording. I mean, on that record, you could I, but, but I haven't heard it for a while. But I heard it, yeah, last time I heard it, I was appalled by how ill I sound, you know. Um, I was just recording all the time, tinkering about with stuff, and I don't know how, how you know, I'm thinking I, I need to make another record, but, like, I'm getting to it organically. I've always been for that. And there was so much time because there weren't gigs to go to and it wasn't like, you need to get an album out because you've got these tour dates and it's all hinged around other stuff that's happening because nothing was happening. So that was the difference. Yes. Because nothing was happening, it, it, it's like it. there was time to mess around and, you know, so the amount of stuff I recorded is like, but I I really think that recording that record took no time at all to actually record the bits that are on the record because I listen to things like that was one take, that was two takes, that was that was like just tossed off, you know, and like, but. To get to that point took took weeks of of messing around and not getting anywhere and doing things that turned out to be nothing to do with it. You know, it was quite a luxury. The time was a luxury. Yes, absolutely. So the the record was written and was it also recorded in America in New York? I think so, yeah. I think I did some bits over here, actually, after the lockdown. And when I was able, like about 18 months later, I was able to come back here. And I did do a few bits here, which I forgot about. But I had to listen to something to try and learn it the other day for playing live. And I thought, oh, yeah, I I played some keyboard bits and like all kinds of bits and pieces 
over here. So who who's all who's also featuring on the album? Who have you got? Because there's a strong sound to it. Um, I did all the guitar and all the bass. Um, Amy played the piano on a track on Standing Water. She played the piano. There's a drummer. There's one drummer. Is a man called a young man called Sam Shepherd. And it's his real name, Sam Shepard. Mm-hmm. And he lives down the road from me, so I would get him in. And he used to go to the Berkeley College of Music, but he left, he dropped out, which I think is quite funny. And he's just really good and real fun to work with and, like, gets it, you know. And, like, I, I, I met him. He was working in a coffee shop that I go in. And I said... You know, do you want to come and play the drums on something? I thought, well, he might be good. I had this idea that he might be good and he'd be good to work with. I liked him. And, and uh, yeah, and he did something and like I paid him some money and I got him in again and he would just pop up the road and play on a track. And I think, God, he's easy. He's good as well. And he had a, a like a a vibe he he sort of looked at the kids oh this is great i've got this drum kit there's four different drums you know <laughs> and he said do you mind if i take some of the drums away and he took the floor of the rack tom away and he just had the floor tom and the snare and bass drum and the hi-hat and a cymbal which he never touched and i'm thinking he's doing it all right with nothing but just really good and really quite unique in a way, you know. Yes. And, uh, so he plays right through it, and then I'm right through it, and then there's a couple of friends of mine who came in, and like the guy played the organ and a couple of bits, maybe on one or two tracks. Um, uh, yeah. Um, and Amy came in and out here and there but so, and was it and was this the first time you recorded with this particular label and did they did they had they sort of wanted to no sign? i didn't record with them i mean i i i like after i got it finished i was like okay well i better put it out so like i i got onto onto you know like Shellshock, who were in Norwich, who like I've known since they were back. So I've been working with them since like 1986, you know. And I said, I've got this record, I want to put it out, and I just want to do it as a CD. I can't be doing with the vinyl thing, and I'm going to do it as a CD, but I need a publicist. And these, they, the Chris down at Shellshock, he said, you know, they're in, um, they're at, um, Oh, St. Mary's Plain in Norwich. Oh, yes. Yeah, I got you. And uh, he said, well, we've been working with this guy and, like, give him a call. And, like, you know, he'd probably like to work with you. And, like, so I get on to him and he says, oh, I'd love to work with you. Send me the record. So I send it to him. He said, I love it. Um, Look, I want to send it to a record label with your permission. And uh, would you consider putting it out with a label? I'm going... Yeah, I've got a year to sort of stand around while a label think about what to, you know, this was the beginning of this year. And I was like, uh, well, yeah, you can send it to them, you know. And I'm thinking, well, they'll just say no anyway. 
But they said yes, and it was to Peter. And they said, we actually tried to sort of sign you like 10 years ago, but you didn't seem interested. And I go, yes, I thought, yeah, I thought, you know, you were just kind of, you know, saying, oh, yeah, that'd be fun. And the next thing, like, you'd have changed your mind anyway, and I was busy. It was a bit like that. It was all a bit. But anyway, like, we sort of got a deal together and... um, um suddenly there we were you know and i had this record blimey and and live dates as well that are coming very soon so is it the case just on that level of the health thing are you is it all okay again now do you feel back to back on form i think i have to be a bit careful because the other thing is that like you know, I'm 69 now, and uh, like I was a bit younger when I was last out touring, which was 2019, and then some dates in 2020, immediately prior to the lockdown. But time has marched on, and I'm older than I was, you know. So I, I it's like I, I played. Last Saturday, I did the first UK show since the lockdown, and um, it was fine. I didn't, I didn't feel like uh, I can't get through this or anything like that. I felt fine. Yes, that's good. That's good. So coming back to the the album, because it is, it's got a lot of energy to it. And I must admit, right to the end, you got a track called zoom glittering in the sun and then drag time as well i mean all the material you know it it doesn't fade does it and also stand in water is this one your homage to chroma it's a mixture of every seaside town because you know people think they're they're an absolute living paradise imagine living there but what what gets forgotten it's like you know brighton it's like there's always been high unemployment. There's always been disaffected youth because there's 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 amusements, you know. Um, but now those you know Brighton's become very cultured and everything. But when I was growing up, it was it was really like film stars lived there, and everyone else was in a, at a dead end, really. Yes, it wasn't. There wasn't like you know, there was there were factories in New Haven. There were factories. There weren't factories in Brighton, and where there aren't factories, there's unemployment. It's sad. It's how our society is. You know, I mean, like, or you've got a seasonal job. Yes, some sort of part-time job, minimum wage job, waiting on, you know people who have i don't know how come these people have got all the time in the world to come to places like brighton or if they're not the same people all the time they must be coming in shifts <laughs> I I guess it, it always reminds me of that film with david essex and even ringo star what was yeah. it that will be the day won't it and then that's Stardust. a great film that actually yes it captures it all so well, doesn't it? Really, because you do on your on the album. You start with Southern Rock. Your second song 
it's kind of a it's kind of an interesting sonic instrumental, isn't it? Which is which is not something yeah. you always ex- uh, expect. No, I, I, I've always liked instrumentals. You know, sometimes I just feel really well. I you know I feel obliged to write some words, but why should I? I mean, can't I? Can't I sing like? Can't I sing with an echo unit or a or a bass synthesizer? Why do I have to sing with my voice? Why do I, I mean? Can't you know? Why do there have to be words? Why do there? Um, yes, yeah. look at David Bowie's Low album. So there you go. He yes. he he experienced he experimented with soundscapes, I suppose. Yes, that's it, really. I'd love to make a full scout soundscape record. You know, I'm just trying to pay for way. Yes, okay. And then you slip in a track, which I remember watching a documentary one uh, very recently, one of those classic album series. It was The Who, and um, I said, um, Big Sellout, was was that the title of it? And they were talking about, yeah, and they were talking about selling out. Was um, uh, Who's Next was the one that they did the classic albums yeah because you do a track you just put in in uh intermission which is a little kind of musical ditty how did that because that's why it's actually the end of a track called bad hat town but i thought it was quite funny that it would be its own track right and it's it's like it's actually the music that would be playing while they you know while they were sort of the they used to have this girl with the, the the kind of tray out in front of her who would... Oh, yes. God, we get the ice creams. But we... This is in my mind that in this derelict cinema, there's still the, 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 the ice cream girl, you know. Yes. And, and then... Uh, yeah, cool, cool, Kiora. Oh, yes, <laughs> I know. That was such a great one, wasn't it? All that, all that sort of stuff. And it's like this... This tropical paradise, you know, it's it's grey, it's Tuesday, it's November, and it's a tropical paradise. I know. In a, in a, yes, absolutely. And then you trip over the stairs just as you get back to your seat and feel a bit disappointed. But then, okay, so what the old Versailles, Versailles where did, when did you write that? And what the was old the... Versailles. It's, uh, it's like... Well, actually, that was the first song I can remember writing um, after after the after the after I was you know out of the heart attack stuff and everything. Um, I I got an email from an American woman I know um, who's just wrote me this email. It was all in the email. She said, "Yeah, I was sitting on the steps of this." pub looking at the Parker Pan factory, which is where my dad works in New Haven. And she 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 knew that I came from New Haven. She didn't know that my dad worked at the Parker Pen Company or that my the house I was actually born in was next door to the Parker Pen Company. Right. Um and she was sitting there and she said and then I got on this boat to go to France on the night ferry. Um, and this guy, this guy uh, 
she said this guy took me up to the captain's deck because he thought he would get laid and he di he didn't but i she went up into the captain's you know into the into the control center of the ship the bridge and um and it was about that really and it's it's like um yeah, the, the Sperry Terminal, the Ferry Terminal was just down the road from the house I was born in. And it was something like it was this indicator of like there was a life outside of where I was. You could go to France and it was somewhere where people didn't speak English and it was seemed to be exotic. Mm. But really, Rubby somehow with these big old boats and those steamships, you know, and um, there are there, there, there was this one which was the grand old dame of of car ferries, and it was called the Versailles, and right. it had a ballroom on it. I've been on that boat quite a few times, and it's like it had a ballroom on the back of it, and it was all very shabby, and it's just rolling through the night. And I thought, oh well, you know. Yes, absolutely. No, that's a it's a fantastic song. And then the track you also wrote towards the end, they come free with cornflakes. Where was oh, this? Yeah, that was longer, but I cut it down for some reason. I think I just was bored, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, it's it's the continuing story, really, of John, Paul, George, and Alan, who are like you know every every town in the country has a has a a, a Beatles, you know, a band that could be bigger than the Beatles if everyone if only everyone knew about. Them, uh, who 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 are kind of like to me it was like a symbol of hope really at the same time as like you know you you, you could say oh them they'll never get anywhere well did it ever occur to you that they might not want to yes or you know they might be quite pure in what they're doing or they might be a lot better than you ever realized and you'll laugh at them and say oh, them they'll never get anywhere they're pretentious and then you just you know i mean i knew this guy who used to laugh at brian eno he grew up in the same town he said oh he was a complete suit he was really pretentious he was like you know and he'd uh, tell all these stories about brian eno well brian eno is brian eno. that guy's nowhere you know but uh, he was kind of wrong about brian eno I think. <laughs> well yes. maybe he was right and the rest of us are all who can tell this is true, actually. And so, and yes, and I was going to say Zoom, Glittering in the Sun. Is this kind of your a lockdown sort of, um, yes, your, your experience of being sort of on the computer talking to people across the world? No, not at all. It was like, you know, that thing, you can go out of a town. You can do it very fast by keeping pressing the arrow and like you go through and suddenly you, you can go out of a town into the country. And like I always think that thing where you see a town from uh, up on the hills, you see that in Brighton a lot. You know, you go out on the downs to see the whole place spread out. 
and it's just glittering and it sparkles and you've got no idea what's happening. Yes. But if you went zooming the other way and with Google Earth, you could zoom out and out and and make it bigger and bigger and suddenly you'll see houses and you'll see grubbiness and peeling paint and prostitution and kind of broken windows and, you know, rotting brickwork and God, I don't know. And then you can... Zoom the other way and just see this wonderful glittering scene and imagine that everything's perfect. Mm-hmm. It's a strange thing, really. Yes, it is a strange thing. And your last dra- uh, track on the album, Drag Time, where did this one, your inspiration for this one come from? Oh, I don't know. It was the lockdown and it was like, and there's going to be high. Uh, people are going to lose their jobs. Businesses are going to shut down and all this. And I'm going, I remember just, just going drag time is coming around. Sad times are coming to town. But the other part of it is it's, it's always ends up being me anyway. I can't help it. It's like, um, you know, but like when you, 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 you this realization that you're not going to get younger, you're going to get older, and like you can't escape it, but you can deny it. You know, and men are really good at looking in the mirror and seeing a 35 year old, and like, who are they trying to fool? You know, and that's <laughs> this, this window of reflection is interfering with my James Bond fantasy because we all think we're James Bond, you know, until it's like you go, oh, oh that's me, isn't it? You know, yes, especially when you're in the bathroom and the mirror's been turned and it's kind of magnified quite strongly, and you think, oh my god, I can see 10 years ahead, so um. You can see the you can see too you can see too many details, can't you? Oh, there's, there's there's an app that will do that now. Yeah, let's not go there. I think I think I prefer an app that can tell you what bird song there is in your vicinity, and that makes you feel kind of holistic and lovely. But yes, being able to see yourself magnified and yeah. what you you look like in ten that years. Not, yes, I mean that. Yeah, but anyway, you 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 know, and how do you deal with that? You're going to get older, so what should you do? Grace Slick won't be seen in public anymore from the Jefferson Airplane. Yes, Grace. You know, and I think that's such a shame because it's like, but then someone will always say, I always have to tell promoters, please don't use a photo of me from 45 years ago. Like, because it's misleading. It's it's a misrepresentation. And someone will always say, oh, you've aged a bit. And I mean, well, what did you think I was going to do? You yeah. know? <laughs> yes, the, the Nivea wasn't going to work that. The Nivea night cream isn't that good. Oh, so. no, no, that, no, there's no holding it back. You're going mm-hmm. to get old. And eventually you'll die. Yes. You know? But we can't talk about that. Yeah, but but I I think David Bowie captured it in in Dark uh, Black Star, didn't he? His kind of uh, last album, which he recorded, obviously when he knew he was going. So he does that. He he's managed to do that one album, but for most of us, it's too much. Yeah, there you go. But the but when people say, you know, you were much bigger in the seventies, do you often just think, well, I haven't shrunk that much? 
No, what did I tell? I told someone. Well, it's funny, but you know, I think I'm more famous now when I, than than I was when I was famous. <laughs> yes, and and now we see, you know, the Stones, Mick Jagger's eighty, Iggy Pop still doing it. I mean, it's yeah, surprising. But for me, it's like I'm I'm like Britain's biggest underground household name. In some ways, that's what I thought. Yes, this is true. But then, you know, rock and roll survived. I mean, I have to say, Eric, thank. it's been an amazing album, and I've really loved it. You know, I played it a few times, and, you know, it's one of those ones that often the new album is a little bit like, it's all right. But this has got such a great vibe and quite an, a lot of energy to it. And, um, you know, it's, it's almost... I mean, sometimes, and you probably experience it, a bit of a surprise, really, because you hear someone's new album and it's like, it's all the, the things are there, but there's not that magic, whereas this seems to... No, I, like... I never like it when people, they're trying to do what they're known for and they're trying to do the thing that they did. And it's kind of, it, well, yeah, yeah, it's kind of like that, but it's kind of not as good. You know, I never liked that. I always would be more interested in someone doing something where you think, what the hell are they doing now? What have they come up with? It's like, um, you know, if you go back to the Beatles, like every record they made, it was like, have they blown it? What? What's the? Is it? Is it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And by the end of the record, you'd be going, "I love it. I need to hear it again." But at the start, you'd be going, "What the hell have they done now?" And that was every record from "She Loves You" to "Paperback Writer" to "Hey Jude." You go, "What? What's that?" Oh, yes. it's great. You know, I be. I always wanted it to be like that. Really, I don't want people. To you know, oh, I'm known for rockabilly, so you know they they do another rockabilly record or something. We don't need it, do we? No, no, we don't. But look, well, look, thank you ever so much for your time. This has been amazing, and um, and if you want, I'll I'll send this link to your PR person, Sean, I believe his name is, isn't it? And then yeah, sure. you can put yes. you can put it out on the social um, media platform sites, which will be lovely. Yes, of course, yes, um, yeah, and uh, I will actually be playing. Are you actually in Norwich? I am in Norwich on the Earlham Road. Oh right, yes, the Golden Triangle. The G and T, yes, yes. I'm, uh, yeah. <laughs> I I'm gonna play in North North. I'm gonna do a gig. Have you ever heard of Bowood? Oh yes, is that still going? Yeah, yes. I'm going to play there. Gosh, Bowood. This is is that with the delightful Simon Simon Finch? Yes. My God. Yes. That's just. Smell the glass. Yes, I know. I know. I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, in a stately home. It's a real, it's a real wonderful throwback. I don't think it'd be like that. But, yeah, we're going to do, yeah, I was speaking to Simon about it today. Oh, so, so when's Vowood on? I don't know yet. We haven't got a date yet. But when we do, we'll let you know. Yes, well, I, I've heard lots of nice stories about Vowood and the the cultural delight. So it'll be yes, the, 
and the yes, the public fornication and nakedness and and, and <laughs> I don't know if that's <laughs> I hope so, but uh, well, no, actually, I don't actually. At our age, you better keep that closed. Yeah, it's best to. Do you is this album apart from CD, probably digital download? Is it coming out on vinyl as well? Yes. Yes, um, yeah, everyone else has got their vinyl, the record label, and I'm going, is it good? And they're going, oh, yeah, it looks good, it sounds great, it's it's like, and I'm going, mine's held up in the customs office. <laughs> good old Brexit. So um, there you go. Yeah, we... thank Brexit, yes. Take yeah. Yes. Anyway, look, thank you ever so much. I'll let you rock on. You. But, um, yeah, it's been amazing, and thanks ever so much for the new album. This has been good. And, uh, All right, I will see you later. Now I'm going to do the Barry Manilow bit where you loom at the screen and can't figure out how to switch it off. Yes, so, this is true. So I'll, I'll see you soon. Thanks. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. And that, dear listener, as you could guess, is the end of the interview. A massive thank you to Reckless Eric for giving me the time for that interview. And as I said, probably at the beginning, and I'm sure you've made notes, new album coming out, Leisureland. This is going to be August the 25th, 2023. And as I said, it's a really good album. Um, I know I sound a bit surprised, don't I? But I don't know why. Anyway, it is great, so do check it out. Anyway, this has been the C86 Show, David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these interviews have been archived, so you can find them on Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. It's all good. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.